The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. The drop gets me every time, you know? And it just, it just hits differently when there's actually like two giant subs in the room. When you're on your computer, you know, it's like whatever, but it is what it is. Uh, my name is Evan. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I am the creative lead here at the Grove Church. Uh, and essentially what that means is it's my job to help figure out ways that we can use technology to do what we do better, uh, as well as just kind of further the kingdom of God here on earth. So I love being able to do that. I am also a noted Bible nerd, so I love uh, being able to teach the Bible. I love being able to learn more about the Bible. So it is my pleasure to be able to continue our series on the book of James today. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we will get started. Father, I just thank you so much for the gift that it is to gather together as your people and to worship you the way that you deserve to be worshipped and to learn more about you. I pray that today as I speak that they would be your words and not mine. I pray that there wouldn't be a hint of pride in my heart, but that you would equip me and empower me to preach your truth. And I pray that you would help everyone here to hear what you would have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So we start off last week to kind of recap a little bit. We talked about how we're in the book of James. James is a letter written by a man named James. That's how it got its name. And James is actually one of the brothers of Christ, which is really interesting. So I think sometimes we don't think about how amazing that is that we have two books of the Bible that are letters written from Jesus' brothers to the church. That's James and Jude. Uh, Because I don't know about you, but if I came forward and I said, hey, by the way, I'm God in the flesh and I'm perfect and sinless, the people who would be the first ones in line to tell you that's not the case would be my siblings. And and yet, and yet both of Jesus's, I shouldn't say both, there were other ones, but those Jesus' brothers all died believing that he was who he said he was or believing that he is who he says he is. Both of his brothers died believing that Jesus was the son of God, that he was the Messiah, that he was God in the flesh. It's, it's an absolutely incredible thing. And I think it's a testament for us to know that Jesus is who he says he is even today. The other thing to keep in mind with the book of James is that he's writing to a church that's undergoing intense levels of persecution and intense levels of just a a trial. And he's writing to what he calls the dispersion. We can also call it the diaspora, which is just a fancy word for dispersion. But the, the Jewish Christians at the time were being scattered apart because they were being persecuted from both their, their Jewish brothers and sisters who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and they're also being persecuted by the Romans because the Romans didn't like this new religion that was coming up. And so from both sides, they're getting it. They're having to leave and go to other nations. And some of them are being captured. Some of them are being uh, tortured. Some of them are being killed. At the very least, they're all having to pack up and move and leave the homes that they've grown up in for generations after generation. It's an incredibly painful thing that James is writing towards. And so it's important to remember that, as he says, last week we talked about, count it all joy when we walk through trials and tribulations because it is a testing of our faith. Or in other words, when we're walking through difficult times, our relationship with God can come out of the other side of those seasons all the stronger. Or, or to put it another way, in a, unique, in a uniquely only God way, he can make beautiful things come out of pain. And so it's a reminder for us as we're walking through those seasons to count it as joy as we get to see what God will do in the midst of that time. 
And so today's message is going to be, it'll be a little bit interesting because I'm kind of taking different themes of James. We're going to finish chapter one, but you'll see he kind of moves from thought to thought to thought. So we're going to go a little bit quickly. There's going to be kind of like mini messages within the message. So if that sounds cool to you, then great. If it doesn't sound cool to you, uh, you know, give it a chance. Maybe, maybe you'll like it. I don't know. Uh, so starting off in James chapter 1 in verse 12, he continues on from the thought of last week, and he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." And so I struggled a little bit as I was preparing this message because the first two verses are kind of odd. Um, They're not in conflict with each other, and they both say very true things. But it was just weird for me because he goes, blessed is the man who endures under trials. Also, don't you ever say God is tempting you, which both true things, but I didn't see like what's the connecting portion of that. Like why is that the thought that immediately follows when you endure? It's a a good thing. Blessed are you when you do that. And, And I think what James is getting at is this idea of when we walk through difficult times, when we walk through trials, when we walk through seasons of life that are stressful, I think most of us would recognize that we are more susceptible to sin in those moments than just the standard moments of life. And and it would have been very easy, again, keep in mind who James is writing to, as they're receiving this persecution from both ends, it would be very easy for the church in those moments to make sinful choices. It would be very easy for them to walk away from faith, and when they do that, shake their fists at God and say, I wouldn't have had to do this if I wasn't going through this difficult time. You made me do this. And, and, and And it would be so easy for us when we're walking through difficult times and we make choices that we shouldn't be making, how often are we blaming our circumstances? How often are we blaming God for allowing those things to happen even though we're the ones who made the choice? And, and I, I love the way James says it because he says, each man is entourced, each man is enticed by his own desires. Or in other words, we don't need any help being sinful, right? Like our, our hearts are good enough at leading us into sin. We don't have to blame those things on external circumstances. It, it's a reminder also that when we walk through trials, that when we walk through difficult times, are we guarding our hearts? Are we guarding our souls? When we're, when we're walking through difficult times, are we going in with a plan or are we just kind of winging it? And I would compare it to if there was a general who had his armies and he was looking across the field and there was another army there and all of a sudden he just kind of said, all right, boys, go get them. Go fight, fight those guys and win. And then there's army charge, right? It's probably not going to go well, right? If there's no plan, if there's no idea of how we're going to outsmart the enemy, it's just like, go get it done. But for many of us, that's how we live our lives, right? We don't have a plan. We don't think, wow, I'm walking through a really difficult time right now. How's my relationship with God? Am I staying in the word? Am I, am I being active in my prayer? Am, am I seeking to grow? Or are we just kind of like going in and just hoping for the best? That's what we do. A lot of of the times, that is what we do. And I love that 
James doesn't just leave it as God's not tempting you. He says what God is doing. He, he says later on, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Or, or in other words, the, the focal point should not be on the difficulties. The focal point should be on all of the gifts that God has given us. And, and how often do we pause and think about what a gift our salvation is? Like, like what, a, what a gift it is that no matter what we're walking through, no matter the season of life, when we get to the other side of eternity, we will be with Jesus. How often do we reflect on the gift that life is, that just waking up and taking a breath and being able to go about our day, how often do we reflect that that in and of itself is, is a gift that so many people don't get to enjoy unexpectedly? How often do we reflect on our families and our friends and those relationships and what a gift they are in our lives? And it doesn't even have to be big things, right? Like those are big picture things. Like so we can thank God for the little things, like the, the feeling of being able to go on a walk and having the sun in your face. Um, for some of you sickos, you can thank God that it's fall now, right? And so, you know, like, yay, it's cold and the leaves are dying. This is so, this is so great. Um, I mean, fall's fine. I just don't get, I don't get why it's a big deal. Um, <laughs> My wife makes a big deal of it. We took pictures of our kid in a pumpkin yesterday. And I'm <laughs> kind of ashamed of it. Um, so anyway, <laughs> just kidding. They're really, they're really cute. He's in a pumpkin. But um, we, can, we can thank God for the big things. We can also thank God for just the little things, the little things in life that we get to enjoy, whatever they are. And so if, if I was going to give a practical application to, to this portion of James, I, I would say simply this. The next time that life gets really difficult, the next time you're walking through a trial, and I'm saying this to myself as well, this is something I need to implement, and we all know from last week, trials are going to come. When that happens, pause, take two minutes, find somewhere you can be alone, and just thank God for 120 seconds for as many things as you can think of. As many things as you can list off, just thank God for all the different gifts in our lives. And I think what that would do is when we're walking through trial, when we're walking through temptation, when we're walking through difficult times, imagine how differently we would walk into those moments if we went in with an attitude of gratitude. And I think it would really begin to change our hearts in those moments. I love the way James ends that thought because he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. And then he continues. So that verse is about remembering God's word. He brought us forth. He saved us, God's salvation. And he talks a little bit about how that knowledge changes us. In verse 19, he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So again, James goes from this idea of hearing the word and, and to this idea of how should that change us if we truly internalize what we believe. Because when we read God's word, it should, it should humble us. Not humiliate us, but it should humble us. If, if, we're, if we're reading God's word, if you're reading God's word and you're coming away feeling proud, you're, you're reading it wrong which is a really blanket statement to make, but there's no part of the Bible that we should read and think to ourselves, man, I am amazing. Just, 
crushing it right now. Now, the, the Bible is essentially, to really, really simplify it, it's the story of how we are the princess, and we are locked away in the tower, and we have no hope of escape, and then Jesus is the knight, and he saves us. We're not the knight. There's no story in the Bible where we are the knight. We are always the princess, forever and always. We are the princess being saved by God, which I know sounds kind of ridiculous to say, but it's true. And just think about, think about the gospel for a moment. Like what, what would change in our lives if we went from knowing it, like we can probably recite it, to actually believing it fully? Like if we believed that we, that we were dead in sin, that there was no hope, and that God made a way, that God came to earth as a man, and he lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live, and that he died the death that we deserve to die, and that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can now find our hope in God, that we can find our forgiveness in him, that on the other side of eternity, we get to spend that with Christ. If we actually believe that, of course it would change the way that we treat others. Of, of course, if we truly believed those things to be true, we would be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. Because, because the Bible is nothing if not a very long book talking about how slow to anger God is. Like, as I read through the Old Testament, there's so many moments where if I, if I was God, I would have just smote the Israelites and started over, right? Like, just, you know, forget it. We're going to find another people group. I'm going somewhere else, and we're, we're going to start this whole experiment over again. And I, I think there's so many moments, if I was God and I had to deal with me, I would have started over plenty of times as well. The, the, we see throughout the Bible, God continuously gives grace and mercy to the Israelites when they don't deserve it. And every day of our lives, God continuously gives us grace and mercy when we don't deserve it. And, and, and if we truly believed that, the idea of holding grudges, the idea of holding on to anger begins to feel ridiculous because God doesn't do that for us. And, and, and how, how wicked would it be for us to receive the gift of grace from God and not pass that along to others? And I, I love the way James says it. He talks about how the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think with a lot of us in here, we can close our eyes and we can think about moments that we regret. We can think about things that we've said to tear other people down, things that we wish we could take back. I would imagine most of those things were not said when we were really calm and collected. Like, I, I would imagine most of those things were said when we were angry. And here's the dirty little secret of anger. It feels really good. Like, we, we enjoy being angry because it means it's not our fault, it's someone else's fault. Like, we, we can begin to feel justified in our anger because the alternative is actually looking introspectively at ourselves. We, we can justify all sorts of wicked behavior towards other people because, ah, oh, they had it coming. Or they, they, did, they did this to me, so they deserve this. And, and, and we don't pause to think about, what if, what if God was like that? How, how short would our lives be if God thought that way as well? And so if I was going to apply this section just as a, a really quick practical thing, the next time that we're angry, and I'm saying this to myself because I'm sure it's gonna happen really soon, I get angry way more than I should, um, take five seconds and just remind yourself why you're saved. 
Five seconds is all it takes. It's just, I'm saved because of what Christ did, not because of what I've done. I'm saved by grace alone. And, and, and just remind yourself, believe that, internalize it. And, and I think that would vastly change the way that we treated other people if we forced ourselves to consciously, to constantly be conscious of what it is that we actually believe, of how we're actually saved. And, and James doesn't just start, stop in that moment, right? So the last verse of that thought is, therefore put away all filthy, filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But it's, it's not just about hearing the word of God, which is incredibly important. So don't hear what I'm not saying. It's incredibly important to absorb the truth of God and to believe it in our hearts. But he moves on in the next verse and he says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, the, fir the first thing that stands out to me about that phrase is a really terrifying thought. When, when James says, not a hearer only, be a doer but not a hearer only, the next line is, thereby de deceiving yourselves. Or, or in other words, it is possible for us to believe that we are something that we're not. Or, or to paint it in the most terrifying possible way, it's possible for us to get to the other side of eternity, believing that we're Christians, and then in that moment have the rug pulled out from under us. Like, that, that is a... Very scary thing to walk through. And what James is saying is that the, the way we can do that is we can absorb truth, we can hear the truth of God's word, but then we don't actually do anything with it. And, and the metaphor he uses is a really interesting one. It's, he says it's like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. And it took me a really long time to figure out what James is trying to say. I had to read books by people smarter than me to try and get, get out what's going on here. But I, I think what's happening is this. There's, there's two reasons you look into the mirror. Either one, to uh, check that you're looking good, or B, because you know you look good, and you're kind of like, I look good today. Um, but for most of us, it's to make sure that everything's looking okay. Um, and I know you wouldn't look at this at me. You look at me and you wouldn't think this. You think, wow, that guy has amazing hair. He probably doesn't have to do anything with it. Um, but in the morning, I have to, you know, it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of chaos. And I have, if you've ever seen The Little Rascals, I have the alfalfa in the back, like the cowlick. And it's, it's just the worst, because I look like an idiot every time I forget about it. And there's been more than one occasion where I am late for work, and so I get ready, and I do my hair really quick, and I walk in, and then people start laughing because I walked into the office, and I just have a strand of hair that's sticking straight up in the back, and then I have to go into the bathroom, I have to wet my hair and get it all down and stuff like that. It's just the worst, you know? It's just the worst that could possibly happen to anyone ever. Um, just kidding. <laughs> But what's happening in that moment is, is in the morning, I, I look at myself, I, I get the information, but I glance over it, I'm not really paying attention, and I don't actually fix what I saw was wrong. Uh, and when we read the Bible, it's like looking into a mirror. We're going to see things reflected back at us. When we look at God's word, when we read God's word, we're going to see encouragement reflected back at us, and we're also going to see areas for growth reflected back at us. We're going to see areas where we're falling short and we can continue to work. And, and when we see those areas and, and we don't do anything with it, that's what James is getting at. We're being a hearer of the word, but we're not being a doer. To, to use an analogy that Jesus uses a lot, 
You can tell a tree by its fruit. I, I have friends who own, they have some property and they have a few apple trees. And so if, if he brought me over one day and he was like, Evan, look at my orange trees. And I looked and there was apples hanging off of them. I'd be like, no, those are orange trees. What are you talking about? And if he was like, no, no, no. We just have to wait for the apples to fall off and then they're going to grow oranges after that. I'd be like, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? Like, that's not, that's not the way trees work um, because the fruit of a tree is evidence of what is inside, right? It's the evidence of what kind of tree it is. In the same way, our lives, the way that we live, the way that we, the way that we treat others is evidence of what is inside of us. It's, it's not what saves us, but it's evidence of whether or not we truly believe what we say that we believe. And, and, and I want to be careful because I think sometimes the pendulum can swing a little bit far. The, the goal is not that we live in sinless perfection because that's not something we're, that we can do. That's not something we're going to be able to attain. The goal is not to be able to look back on our lives and say, wow, I never screwed up even once. The, the goal is to be able to look back on our lives and see growth. The goal is to be able to look from where we gave our lives to the Lord to where we are now and to be able to see this is how the Holy Spirit has been working in my life. This is how I, he, he's helped me to become more and more like Christ. This is how I've been able to grow. And in the same way, we can look forward and see here's ways where I can continue to grow. So we, we, we don't need to feel condemned by our sin because we, we all have it, right? That's something that is, is universal in the human experience but we should be able to see areas where the Holy Spirit is continuously helping us to grow in our faith, to grow in the way that we treat others, to grow in our love of God. So if, if I was going to just give a quick, a quick application for, for this portion, it would be simply, as we read, as we pray, as we live our lives with the Lord, ask him to show us where we've just been hearing, but we haven't been doing. I ask him to show us areas where we can continue to grow and we can continue to be more and more like him. And, and luckily, James actually gives us a couple of examples. The, the last two verses we're going to talk about today are verses 26 and 27. And James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, <coughs> to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so the first thing that James talks about is this, this idea of bridling the tongue or controlling what we would say. And, and I'm going to be honest. If you've read the book of James before, you, you might know that there's a big chapter about taming the tongue that's coming up. So I'm not going to touch this. Suffice to say for now, as Christians, we should control what we say. That's a teaser for a sermon coming up in a few weeks. So stay, stay tuned. It'll be there. Don't worry. Um, I'm going to focus instead on the second verse, and there's two things that James gives us there. He talks about visiting widows and orphans in their affliction, and he talks about keeping ourselves unstained from the world. And so the, the first part, visiting widows and orphans, is very, easily to, is very easy to just transplant and apply that as it's written today. And that wouldn't be wrong. The idea is that there was widows and orphans in James's day who needed to be taken care of. There are widows and orphans today that we need to take care of as the church. Absolutely true. There's a, there's a deeper principle that I think that we can apply as well, though. And that is the idea of, in James's day, the widows and the orphans would have been among the poorest people in society. 
In, in, in other words, they would not have been able to give back. And so it would have been very tempting for the early church, and it's tempting for any church, um, to just focus all the attention on the people who have money. For the early church, uh, there's, there's people who were funding missionary trips, all those different things, missionary journeys, I should say, like what Paul was doing, um, that, that was coming from funding from the wealthy within the church. It would have been very easy for them to focus all of their attention on those types of people and neglect the widows and orphans because there was never going to be anything in it for them. And, and what, I th- what this made me think of is there was a, a memorial a little while ago that I attended for a lady in our church, and she passed away. And she was, she was older. She had been a widow for a long time. And I was listening to her son giving, giving the eulogy for his mom. And he, he doesn't attend here. He attends another church. And so he, he just took a moment to kind of express gratitude for the church and the way that they took care of his mom. And, and one of the things he said was, I helped my mom with her finances. I, knew, I know that she could not have been a very big giver. And, and yet, you all treated her like royalty. And I, I just, in that moment, I thought it was just such a beautiful picture of a son appreciating the church, loving his mom the way that God commands us to love people. And it was a convicting moment for me, too, because it just made me think of how do I love people who can't pay me back? And that can be financially, right? It can be how do I love people with my money and people who aren't going to be able to pay, back, pay that back or whatever it is. It can also be emotionally. How, how do I love people who emotionally are in the spot to be able to give that back right now? Um, parents with young kids, you probably understand like, what that looks like. How do you love people with your time who maybe can't give those things back to you? And it, it was just such an incredible thought for me of how in my life, am I intentional at loving people even when it's not going to necessarily come back to me in favors or anything like that? And the second thing that James talks about is this idea of being unstained by the world. And I think part of it is, again, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a group of Christians who are being intensely persecuted from both sides. It would have been very easy for them to go one way or the other. Like, imagine how easy it would be to just simply renounce Christ and to go back to the Judaism that you grew up in, to go back to your family, to go back to your friends, and just to pretend none of this ever happened. Or on the other side, how easy it would be to just be a little bit more Roman, to just worship Caesar once in a while. You can still maintain your faith for the most part, but you just have to kind of go along with emotions. But both of these things would have been incredibly tempting for the people. And what it would be is it's allowing the cultural pressures of their time to influence what they believe. And I think for, for us today, that's not really the way that we struggle with this. In some parts of the world, that's still true. I, I remember talking with a, a missionary who's in a sensitive country, and he was saying that his prayer every year is that one person comes to Christ. And it's a crazy thing to think about, but he's talking about if I spend 365 days ministering to these people, it is a massive win if one of them comes to Jesus because he's in a country where coming to publicly declaring your faith for Jesus means immediate ostracization from your family uh, and and possibly even being killed. So there, there are still places in the world where the pressures are very much the same as to what James is writing to. But I think for a lot of us, it, it comes down to there's, a, there's an author I like named Andrew Clavin, and the way he phrases it is theological barnacles. Or, or in other words, if, 
if you've ever had a boat that goes in the ocean, I've never owned such a boat, but I've been on said boats. Um, I know one of the things, so I've been told, that happens is you eventually collect barnacles along the bottom of the hull. And if you don't pay attention to it, it can eventually break, it can sink the ship, right? It can break apart the ship. You have to do the work of scraping off the barnacles. But what's interesting about them is it's, you don't see it happening. Like, it's not like you're sailing and all of a sudden you're like, ah, oh, barnacles! And then they attach themselves to the hull, right? It, it, just, it just kind of happens as, as you're sailing, as you're docked, all these different things. But it's very easy to just not pay attention to it. And all of a sudden you don't realize that you've done irreparable damage to the boat because you weren't doing the hard work of scraping off the barnacles. In the same way, I think that as we go through life, as we go through culture, little things begin to attach themselves to our faith without us even knowing it. There's things that we believe just because culturally it's what we kind of believe, but we haven't actually checked those things against scripture. A really easy example, this is something that a lot of people believe, um, the idea that Satan is in charge of hell. And that comes from, you know, whether you read Dante's Inferno or whether you watch Tom and Jerry, right? Like there's kind of like the, the idea comes from all different sorts of places, but it's not true. Like, like the, the Satan is not like, it's not like God is like Satan, you get this spot and you get to rule and then I get everything else. Like, no, God's in charge of everything. Hell is just as much God's domain as is earth and as is heaven. God is in charge of it all. But it's a little thing that we can allow ourselves to believe. I, th I think another example would be kind of this idea of American individualism which isn't in and of itself a bad thing, and valuing, valuing the individual is not a bad thing, but what it can do is it, it can allow us to justify being selfish. It can allow us to justify not giving to others. It can allow us to justify not helping others because we're looking out for ourselves and we're what's most important. It can allow us to not live selflessly. My wife and I are watching Friends right now. You know, we like, we like sitcoms and whatnot, so this isn't a bash against sitcoms, but it, we were talking about how funny it is that we root, we root on sin sometimes. Like, we root on, like, characters are doing things that we know are bad, we know are sinful, but we get caught up, and we're like, yeah, they did, like, whatever it is. It, it's funny little things like that that just begin to, again, without us even realizing, and they just attach ourselves to our faith, and so we need to make sure we're doing the hard work of scraping the hole, of checking what we believe against what God actually says. And so if I was gonna just apply this section, the practical thing, and this one's probably the most obvious one, but it would simply be asking God, where in my life can I love someone without expecting anything back? Who in my life can I love knowing that I'm not gonna get anything back? And the other question would simply be, as we, as we read through the word, as we pray, as we journey on with faith in Christ, asking ourselves, what are the things that I believe just because they're what I believe, just because they're what culture believes? And what are the things I believe because this is what God's word actually says? And constantly be checking for those things, constantly be comparing what we believe versus what scripture actually tells us. I know this, this message has been a little bit of an odd one. Like I said, it's kind of a few different ideas that are, that are coming together, but there, there is a through line and, and it's simply this when we're walking through difficult times and when we're not, really at all times, we should be holding tightly to God's word and, and we should be doing what it says. When we're walking through trial, when we're walking through temptation, we should constantly be immersing ourselves in the promises of God and not only that, we should be actively trying to live out what God has done for us for other people. And I, I love James for challenging us to do that today.
Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the mercy and the grace that you constantly show us. I pray that we would never take that for granted. I pray that as we walk through difficult times and we walk through temptation, that we would never blame you for those things, but I pray that we would acknowledge with gratitude the gifts that you have given us. I pray that we would live in your word, that we would live in your promises, and that we, wouldn't, that we would not just hear them, but that we would believe them, and that we wouldn't just hear them, but that we would actually do what it says. And Father, I pray that you would help us to love others. I pray that you would help us to take the love that you have shown us and pass it along. I pray that you would help us to anchor ourselves into what you have truly said and not just the little things that sneak in. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.